During five months in 1979, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris unleashed terror in Los Angeles County. They kidnapped, raped, and tortured five teenage girls to death with items from their sinister toolbox. Tragically, on Halloween night that year, their fifth and final victim was 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, whose harrowing screams continued to echo through time, captured on a recording made during her last hours. I'm Jelsey May, and this is Exhibit May. Lawrence's life appeared to lack a clear path from the very beginning. He was born on September 27, 1940, as an unwanted child, and shortly after his birth, he found himself in an orphanage. It was there that he was adopted as an infant by the Bitteker family. Due to George's job, the family frequently moved, leaving Lawrence without a sense of stability or belonging. In time, the young boy would recognize that the absence of his parents' affection compelled him to seek attention through questionable ways. At the age of 12, Lawrence began shoplifting and got hooked on the buzz it gave him. Despite having incredible academic potential with an IQ of 138, he remained disinterested in education, finding classes to be a tedious chore. In 1957, he decided to drop out of school. He devoted his time to criminal activities that became more serious as time passed, resulting in Lawrence's imprisonment at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until the age of 19. In the following years, he was incarcerated on multiple occasions for various infractions, including transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines, robbery, and repeatedly violating his parole conditions. Throughout this period, Lawrence underwent several psychiatric evaluations, during which he was characterized as a manipulative individual with impulsive behavior and concealed hostility. In 1966, he received a diagnosis of borderline psychosis. However, despite these assessments, he was repeatedly released back into society. In 1974, 34-year-old Lawrence entered a supermarket, put a pack of meat in his pants, and walked out without paying. An employee witnessed the act and confronted the man, who proceeded to stab the worker in the chest without saying a word. The victim survived and Lawrence was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon and was sent to the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. There, he would eventually cross paths with his future accomplice, Roy Norris. Born on February 5, 1948, Roy spent most of his childhood shuttling back and forth between his parents' home and various foster families in Colorado. Like Lawrence, Roy felt unwanted but also allegedly went through a great deal of abuse, including sexual assault by one of his foster family members, which possibly caused his distorted sexual fantasies. At the age of 16, the troubled teen dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. In 1969, Roy was deployed to Vietnam where he discovered drugs and developed an addiction. These problems ultimately led to his discharge from the military, and he was diagnosed with severe schizoid personality. Upon returning to the United States, the 22-year-old underwent a troubling transformation, evolving into a predator. 
After harassing, assaulting, and attempting to assault multiple women, Roy was sentenced to five years of imprisonment at the Atascadero State Hospital in 1970 for a violent attack on a female student at San Diego State University. He remained there until 1975 when he was determined to no longer pose a threat to others, which would later prove to be a grave error. Similar to Lawrence, Roy was unable to stop his criminal behavior and just three months later, he sexually assaulted a 27-year-old woman in Redondo Beach after she declined a ride on his motorcycle. He was apprehended a month later and following a conviction for forcible rape in 1976, he was transferred to the California men's colony. It was there that Roy crossed paths with Lawrence Bittaker, leading to catastrophic consequences. The two men quickly realized they had a lot in common even though the crimes they had committed in the past differed substantially. What ultimately united them was a similar twisted fascination with sexual violence. Believing they were soulmates, the two spent extensive time conversing about their dark desires of domination and rape fantasies and plotting their actions for when they would eventually be released from prison. Upon his parole release on November 15, 1978, Lawrence Bittaker adopted the facade of a transformed individual. He secured a job, engaged in charitable activities, and donated to the Salvation Army. Lawrence also cultivated relationships with local teenagers who perceived him as a friendly figure offering them beer and cigarettes. In reality, Lawrence was conducting experiments to earn potential victims' trust while he waited Roy's release. On January 15, 1979, the long-awaited day finally dawned when the two individuals were reunited and began their deadly plot. In February, they purchased a silver-gray 1977 GMC Vendura cargo van they nicknamed the Murder Mac. Over six months, they transformed the vehicle into a mobile chamber for torture and murder. On the morning of June 24, 1979, Lawrence and Roy completed the construction of the bed they had installed in the back of the van. Below the bed, they stored their toolbox, clothing, and a cooler stocked with beer and soft drinks. At 11 a.m., they drove to the beach where they enjoyed beer and marijuana and socialized with girls. After spending the day there, they later went for a drive. At 7.46 p.m., Roy spotted Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, also known as Cindy, a 16-year-old with blonde hair walking along the street, heading towards her grandmother's house just two blocks from her destination. Following an unsuccessful attempt to convince the young girl with marijuana and a ride home, they drove ahead and parked. Roy pretended to fix the light switch while Lawrence remained in the van's driver's seat. As Cindy walked by, Roy quickly ran behind her, covered her mouth, forcefully pulled her into the vehicle, and sped off. As Lawrence drove them to the fire road in the San Gabriel's mountains, he cranked up the radio to maximum volume to mask her screams, while Roy tied the victim's arms and legs and silenced her with duct tape. Although Cindy initially screamed when abducted, she quickly regained her composure and calmly accepted the circumstances beyond her control. 
In a later statement, the men said she shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. Arriving at the fire road, Roy instructed Lawrence to take a walk for an hour and raped her. Upon Lawrence's return to the van, he similarly assaulted the girl while Roy was absent. Once both men were present, they had a 90-minute conversation about their next course of action, with Lawrence ultimately persuading Roy that they couldn't spare Cindy. Lawrence then lifted her off the ground while Roy strangled her manually. After roughly 45 seconds, he was so disturbed by the look in her eyes that he walked away vomiting. Lawrence then took his turn strangling her, using pliers to twist a wire coat hanger around her neck until Cindy's movement ceased. They then wrapped her body in a plastic shower curtain and threw her over a steep canyon. Two weeks later, on July 8, 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall was hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway when two men approached her. In this instance, Roy hid in the van to deceive the girl into thinking that Lawrence was traveling alone. As a girl entered the van, Lawrence offered her a cold beverage at the rear. Hidden behind a bedspread, Roy leaped at her when she tried to retrieve the drink. After a fierce struggle, he managed to subdue her by twisting her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in agony. Roy then silenced her with tape and secured her wrists and ankles. They then drove the terrified girl to a site in the San Gabriel Mountains farther from where they had previously taken Cindy. At this location, she was raped twice by Lawrence and once by Roy. Afterward, they drove to a different spot where Lawrence forced Andrea to walk uphill naked alongside the road and perform oral sex before ordering her to pose for several Polaroid pictures. They then drove her to a third location where Lawrence walked her up a nearby hill again while Roy went to a nearby store to purchase alcohol. During this time, Lawrence took more pictures of the girl while taunting her with his intention to end her life. He challenged her to come up with as many reasons as possible to justify her survival before ruthlessly driving an ice pick through her ear and into her brain, then turning her body over and plunging the ice pick into her other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. He then strangled her before throwing her body off a cliff. Roy later described the pictures, depicting Andrea Hall in a state of sheer terror as she pleaded for her life to be spared. Two months later, on September 3rd, 15-year-old Jackie Doris Gilliam and 13-year-old Jacqueline Leah Lamp were headed to the beach as they sat on the bench waiting for their bus at Pier Avenue. The two men offered them a ride, which the girls gladly accepted. After enjoying some marijuana, they quickly realized that Lawrence had steered the van off the highway and was heading toward the San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls voiced their concerns, both men tried to reassure them with excuses, but they weren't convinced. Jacqueline, the younger of the two, desperately attempted to open the door when Roy struck her on the back of the head with a bag filled with weights, briefly rendering her unconscious. He proceeded to subdue 15-year-old Jackie, restraining her with bindings and a gag until Jacqueline regained consciousness and attempted to flee the van again. However, Roy forcefully twisted her arm behind her back and pulled her back inside. Amid this struggle, Lawrence stopped the van, punched Jackie in the face, and joined Roy in binding and gagging both girls. 
Subsequently, they were transported to the San Gabriel Mountains where they were held captive for nearly two days. Both men were only interested in Jackie during this period as they didn't find Leah attractive. While Leah was tied to a tree, they took turns sexually and physically abusing Jackie as they filmed their heinous acts, and she was forced into posing for explicit photographs. He was also known to have tortured the girl by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and using pliers to tear off part of the nipple. After two days of being held against their will, Jackie was struck in one ear with an ice pick and then strangled to death, while Jacqueline was smashed in the head with a sledgehammer and strangled to death. The two bodies were then thrown over an embankment into the woods. On October 31, 1979, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in the suburbs of Los Angeles when a van pulled up and two men inside offered her a ride. The girl recognized Lawrence as a regular patron of a restaurant where she was employed, so she accepted their offer. The men followed Shirley's directions until they veered onto a different path where the paved road gradually turned into a dirt road that led them to an isolated field. Lawrence abruptly slammed on the brakes, swiftly pushing the girl to the rear of the van while Roy drew a knife, gagged her, and secured her arms and legs with tape. Once on the freeway, Lawrence went to the front to turn down the music and began recording their torture. As the level of violence increased and Shirley began to scream, she was ordered to scream louder. While Shirley pleaded not to be touched, Lawrence continued raping and torturing her with a hammer and pliers. Eventually, Roy took his accomplice's place and again ordered the girl to scream. As Shirley screamed at the top of her lungs, Roy grabbed a sledgehammer and struck the girl on the same elbow 25 times asking what she was sniveling about as she sobbed in pain. He then strangled her with a wire coat hanger that he tightened around her neck with pliers as she begged for death. After approximately two hours of pure torture, Shirley's suffering finally came to an end. Roy later described his recollection of the audio tape they created, saying, We've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, there's no possible way that you'd not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. After brutally murdering Shirley, Lawrence chose to dispose her body on someone's lawn to observe the response from the media. The pair drove to a house selected at random in Sunland, and there, Roy threw her body on a bed of ivy on the front lawn. The following day, a jogger out on their morning run discovered the young girl's battered body. The autopsy revealed shocking injuries and the extent of Shirley's torture. She had blunt force trauma to her head, face, and breasts, lacerations on one of her fingers, a puncture wound on her left hand, multiple fractures on her elbow, and severe tearing of the vaginal and rectal lining caused by pliers inserted into her body. In November 1979, Roy crossed paths with Jimmy Delton, an acquaintance from their time at the California Men's Colony. As the two men conversed and reminisced, Roy began bragging about the criminal activities he and Lawrence had recently committed, assuming that Jimmy, who had also been incarcerated for sexual assault, would find his stories impressive. 
The gruesome accounts of the duo's actions towards their victims were so disturbing that Jimmy initially suspected that Roy may have been making up these tales. However, when the news of Shirley's body and her harrowing injuries came to light, Jimmy was horrified to realize that Roy had been telling the truth. Regardless of Jimmy's past wrongdoings, concealing such information became unthinkable. After consulting with his attorney, he decided to notify the authorities. Detective Paul Bynum of the Hermosa Beach Police Department had initial doubts regarding the former prison inmates' claims, given the absence of concrete evidence. However, after conducting some research, he discovered that Jimmy's statements corresponded with the documented instances of teenage girls who had gone missing in the past five months. Notably, he mentioned that Lawrence and Roy used a silver van. This particular detail piqued the detective's attention as it triggered his recollection of a recent report from a sexual assault victim that described a comparable vehicle. On September 30, 1979, a young woman named Robin Roback was kidnapped and raped by two men using a GMC cargo van. Fortunately, she was able to escape and promptly reported the incident to the police. When interviewed, she was unable to identify her captors, providing only a description of the van as being silver in color. With the limited information available, the police were initially unable to take action. However, their breakthrough came when Jimmy Delton mentioned the van once more. Following this revelation, Robin Robeck was re-interviewed at her Oregon home and presented with a lineup of mugshots. Without hesitation, she identified two individuals from the photographs. Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Despite her ability to identify mugshots of the suspects, she was unable to point out her assailants during the police lineup. Nevertheless, the two were placed under surveillance. In a matter of days, law enforcement observed Roy involved in activities related to marijuana while Lawrence was discovered in possession of drugs during his arrest. These findings allowed the police to detain them on charges of parole violation. While searching Lawrence's apartment, investigators uncovered almost 500 Polaroid photos, some of which showed Andrea Hall and Jackie Gilliam who had been reported missing earlier in the same year. Inside his van, investigators found a sledgehammer, a plastic bag with lead weights, a manual outlining the procedure for tracking police radio frequencies, a container of Vaseline, two necklaces, later confirmed to belong to two of the victims, and a recorded tape of a young woman screaming and pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. The mother of Shirley Ledford later identified the voice on the tape as being that of her only daughter. On November 30, 1979, Roy Norris attended a preliminary hearing concerning Robin Robeck's rape, ultimately leading to the discovery of five other victims. He initially denied involvement in any rapes, murders, or disappearances, but he quickly broke down when detectives informed him of the discovery of compelling evidence within his residence. In a casual, unconcerned manner, Roy recounted how he and Lawrence had abducted, tortured, raped, and murdered five girls they had approached randomly. While he confessed his involvement in the horrifying acts, he attempted to shift blame onto Lawrence, portraying him as a primary culprit in the murders. After his confession, he led detectives to the remains of Jackie Gilliam and Jacqueline Lamp discovered at the bottom of the canyon within the San Gabriel Mountains. Sadly, the bodies of Lucinda Schaefer and Andrea Hall remain missing to this day. 
On March 18, 1980, Roy Norris entered guilty pleas for four counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder as part of a negotiated agreement with the prosecution, a move that spared him from facing the death penalty. Consequently, he received a 45-year prison sentence with the possibility of parole after 30 years. Roy went on to testify as a witness against his partner in crime, Lawrence Bittaker, who adamantly declined to enter a plea or acknowledge any wrongdoing. A jury of seven women and five men today began hearing the case against 40-year-old Lawrence Bittaker, a Burbank machinist. Every spectator was searched by sheriff's deputies before entering Superior Judge Thomas Frederick's courtroom. The man prosecuting Bittaker, Deputy District Attorney Stephen uh. Kay, showed up with a cartload of evidence he plans to present, including a tape recording Bittaker allegedly made while torturing one of his victims. Did you at any time ever use an ice pick? No, sir. You struck Miss Lamp with a sledgehammer. You recall the sledgehammer which was introduced? Yes, sir, I recall. Uh, was that true? No, sir. I touched Miss Ledford on the breast with the cold metal pliers if you listen to the tape, you'll hear those pliers being replaced in the toolbox a few seconds later. Oh, what, what did you touch her on the breast for with a pair of pliers? To shock her with a cold metal. Mr. Norris and another party took turns raping her. Uh, Mr. Norris killed her with two hammer blows to the head. Have you ever seen that young lady in person? No, sir. You ever taken any photographs of this young No, sir. If she was bound and gagged, as Mr. Norris states, she wouldn't be able to hit me. She was paid to make certain responses. She was having difficulty following those directions. I cannot explain the actions of a intoxicated individual who's on PCP. She's saying, don't touch me. She's not screaming. She's not crying. She's not sobbing. Mr. Norris was interested in having the sounds of domination or fear. I wanted some sounds of uh, pillow talk or... Uh, kind of dirty talk. I just told her I liked hearing that type of thing and <clears throat> I hadn't, didn't have a tape at that time of such a thing, so I asked her if she would make one for me. As an audio recording of Shirley Ledford's torment played during the trial in January 1981, Lawrence grinned while other spectators, prosecutors, and jurors shed tears and were compelled to leave due to the graphic nature of the victim's screams as she was tortured. Some spectators had waited days to hear the tape over defense objections. Now, those spectators wish they hadn't. I've heard screams before. I didn't, I didn't, I thought I'd be able to sit and listen. I just never heard anything like that in my life. I, I've never heard screams like that. I, I don't know. It was bad. Were you prepared for what you heard? No, not for that. I, I just couldn't believe it. I have a daughter and I just, I just could see her and I just, I couldn't take it. You've heard it obviously several times before and it still seems to affect you obviously quite deeply. I just picture those girls and how alone they were when they died. I'm sorry. In his opening statement, the prosecutor told the jurors the tape would give them some idea of what hell is like. He was right. During the closing arguments, the prosecution characterized the case as one of the most shocking and brutal cases in the history of American crime, and expressed regret to the jury that they couldn't request a sentence for Lawrence that would subject him to the same suffering as his victims. 
If the death penalty isn't proper in this case, when would it ever be proper? Lawrence Sigmund Bitteker should be put to death by administration of lethal gas. On February 17, 1981, Lawrence Bitteker was convicted on five counts of first-degree murder along with 21 other charges, including nine rape charges. Two days later, he received the death penalty. Post-trial, multiple jurors required trauma counseling, and the prosecuting attorney admitted to having reoccurring nightmares for years following exposure to the tape. Six years after the trial's conclusion, one of the chief investigators tragically took his own life, leaving behind a note detailing how the horrors of the crimes still haunted him. Roy Norris and Lawrence Bitteker have since passed away from natural causes while in prison, yet their dark legacy continues to live on. The recording of Shirley Ledford's horrifying ordeal on Halloween of 1979 is now in the custody of the FBI Academy, where it continues to serve as a tool for training and desensitizing agents shedding light on the stark reality of such brutal crimes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.